In an example of a don't-you-know-who-I-am incident, Sharon Potter shares her experience. I was waitressing in a little hometown cafe, saving money for college. It's the kind of restaurant where the nearby business owners eat lunch every single day, and it's pretty much always the same crowd. During a very hectic lunch shift, a party of six unfamiliar men in business suits came in and sat in my section. I recognized one of them, but not the rest. As I had two other orders to take before theirs, I gave them water and menus and said I'd be with them in just a minute or two. The well-known guy just happened to be a senator. He stood up, grabbed my sleeve, and told me they were in a bit of a hurry and that they needed me to take their order first. I told him there were two other tables who had sat down ahead of them and that as promised, I'd be right back to take their orders. That's when he got indignant and said, Do you know who I am? I said, Of course I do, Senator. And he informed me that I would be taking their order ahead of the other tables, all regular daily customers. I turned around and in a loud voice, I announced to the entire dining room, We have Senator X dining with us today, and he would like to be served ahead of all of the rest of you. Would that be okay? The guy sat back down, turned bright red, and never said another word. And he waited his turn just like everybody else and left me a very nice tip. Don't you know who I am is a phrase we want to shout when we feel like others should recognize our power or respect our position. It's a phrase used to tell the world we are better than you. It's a phrase those with feelings of entitlement or on a power trip often use. However, there's only one person in the history of the world who could rightly use this phrase because of who he is, but he never used it in a way we do today. That person is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God Himself, and how He viewed and displayed His power is very different from how the world does. Jesus, who held all earthly authority and divine power, treated power in a way we should emulate. Now let's learn some of these biblical principles on power as we continue our sermon series titled Marvel. As you know, in this series, we're looking at the seven miracles of Jesus Christ as recorded in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 6 as we study verses 15 to 21. John chapter 6, verses 15 to 21. These verses take place right after Jesus performed the miracle of multiplication of five loaves of bread and two fish to feed thousands, which we talked about last week. I read now John 6, verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. The Bible tells us that after the feeding of the 5,000 men and presumably thousands of women and children who had gathered on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee near Bethsaida, that they wanted to make him king right there and then. Seeing and experiencing His divine, miraculous powers, the people wanted to replace their present earthly government and make Jesus their king, their leader. Any other person would be so honored and jump at the chance to be made king with all of the perks that came with being an earthly king. But not Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus knew their intentions and didn't allow it to happen. He withdrew from the crowds to be alone in the mountains, Jesus was not seduced by earthly power. 
He didn't need the accolade nor the title. He knew who he was. He was the Son of God, God himself. He already had the title and the power. It didn't need to come from the affirmations of the people. While we may not think much about this verse, it provides us with a very important biblical principle about power through the example of Jesus. Biblical principle number one, those with true powers do not need to prove it to others for self-glorification. Those with true powers do not need to prove it to others for self-glorification. We see this clearly in the life and earthly ministry of Christ when He did not do miracles just to get the people to like Him and enthrone Him, but instead only did miracles to authenticate His message or when He was showing compassionate care for those in need. In fact, often when a large crowd would gather just to see Jesus do miraculous things just for show, He would admonish them and refuse to do them, but instead would do His miraculous work in private and drive away the crowds. Philippians 2.6 tells us that Jesus, as a divine Son of God, did not dwell on the great power He had as God incarnate to bring Himself more glory. This example of Jesus serves as a great reminder and lesson for us. If we have some earthly power because of our position, wealth, or influence, we don't have to show it off to others just for our own self-glorification. But we know these types of people. They are the ones who are narcissistic, prideful, and egotistical. They tell everyone to look at them because of who they think they are. These are people who are often caught up with titles, and they think that their titles, whether positionally or educationally, comes with it automatic respect and honor. They forget that respect is earned. It's not demanded. These people are actually insecure about their power. Their insatiable need to be recognized and remembered speaks of their insecurity they have of their powers. They may even employ fake humility, but the praise and adoration of others is something they enjoy and drive their self-identity. And yet it is clear in the example of Jesus, if one has true power, there is no need to prove it to others for self-glorification. Richard Shaw writer and journalist, recounts this story of what he personally witnessed. He recalls, I used to work in the bar area of a rather exclusive golf club near Toronto. For me, it was just a part-time gig. I actually liked it. It was a nice club, very fancy. I like getting out there and slinging drinks. I talked with a lot of the members, all rich guys. Most of them were pretty good to get along with and friendly. However, there were a few who were total snobs. This one guy in particular was the CEO of some big company and thought he ruled the world. He would come in and bark out orders like he owned the place. Anyway, the club hired this new guy. I think his name was Willie or something. Medium-sized guy, about 40 years old. Never said much. I liked him. And one day, Mr. Big Shot CEO is at a table with some of his buddies. He decides he wants another drink. He sees Willie walk by and yells out, Hey, boy, we need some service here. Willie stops and does a slow turn and says, I beg your pardon? The CEO says, I said we need some drinks here, boy. Willie was obviously a little shocked. The CEO yells out, Do you not know who I am? I want service now. 
Willie casually walks over to the table and quietly leans over to the big shot and says, Sir, I suggest you rephrase your request real quick, because if you don't, I'm going to embarrass you in front of your friends here by hitting you so hard in the throat, you'll need an ambulance to get you out of here. The table was deathly quiet. The look in Mr. Big Shot's eyes was total fear. He realized Willie was about to act on his words. Suddenly, Mr. Big Shot is apologizing like there's no tomorrow, and then politely requests another round of drinks. I think all of his buddies at the table knew he deserved it. There was never a complaint about Willie. The guy also left Willie a rather large tip, probably so he wouldn't kill him later in the parking lot. This story from Richard illustrates that those with real power, like Willie, doesn't need to flaunt it. But those who don't have real power, like this big shot CEO, are the ones that find the need to show it. I read now verses 16 and 17. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. In the corresponding accounts of the same incident in Matthew 14 and Mark 6, we find out that Jesus immediately made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to Capernaum away from Bethsaida. Now, why would Jesus want his disciples to quickly leave the area when it was already dark? Without reading too much into what is not explicitly stated in the Scriptures, perhaps Jesus was afraid the people would make his disciples their earthly princess if Jesus was to be king, as the disciples were the ones who provided them food for the thousands gathered there. Perhaps some thought that the five loaves of bread and two fish multiplied in the disciples' hands as they seemed to have an unlimited amount of free food that they would give to them. But as we noted last week, very clearly the Bible tells us the miracle of multiplication happened in the hands of Jesus. Maybe Jesus was worried that the clamor of the thousands gathered there to make Jesus their king would somehow negatively affect the thinking of his disciples to focus on the temporary instead of the eternal. Or perhaps it would encourage them to lead a rebellion or something else. Whatever the case, Jesus tells them quickly to get into a boat and head back to Capernaum in the evening while he went alone into the mountains. Notice that the gospel writer John gives us two descriptions of the conditions in which they got into the boat. The first description that is mentioned by John is that it was evening. The sun had set and it was already dark. This should not really be an issue for these experienced fishermen who would have regularly fished on the lake at night. But let's remember that in the darkness, they would not be able to rely on their natural abilities and power, like the power of sight and the ability to clearly distinguish things if something were to go wrong or a problem arose. For example, the dark is okay unless you lose an earring but don't have the light to help you look for it. Or the pitch darkness of your hotel room is not an issue unless you need to find the bathroom in the middle of the night and are unfamiliar where it is. Now, the second description that John gives us is that Jesus was not physically present with them in the boat. Again, there is no problem. It doesn't matter. They were experienced fishermen who had crossed these waters countless times 
even before they met Jesus. They don't need Jesus to navigate to the other side. It wasn't as if Jesus being there or not would really change anything in how they sailed the boat to Capernaum. But as we'll see, when a problem arose, that's when a lack of Jesus' physical presence becomes an issue for them. And sure enough, look what happens in verse 18. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. The Bible tells us while they were in the boat sailing, an evening storm blew in and began to churn the waters of this large lake. Having just been on the Sea of Galilee, I know personally that because of the topography of the area, when winds come down the mountain slopes that surround the lake, the winds are quick and fierce, and storms can very quickly, easily come out of nowhere. It was dark, and they were without Jesus. So these disciples had to battle the storm alone, which was a challenge. In fact, we're told in Mark chapter 6 that they were straining at the oars, meaning they were having a very hard time fighting the storm to make it to Capernaum. Matthew chapter 14 tells us that the winds were contrary, meaning the winds were against them in the direction they wanted to go. So they were impeded in their journey and could not progress. Simply put, these experienced fishermen were struggling hard just to get to nowhere. Seems like that's how life is for many of us. We go through so many struggles and challenges, and it seems like it gets us nowhere, and we simply end up where we began. And this is our second biblical principle, biblical principle number two. Perceived great human powers are quite limited when challenges arise. Perceived great human powers are quite limited when challenges arise. In fact, the entire COVID pandemic has shown this principle to be true. It didn't matter how much knowledge you have. It didn't matter how educated you were. It didn't matter how much money you had, how old you were. This pandemic affected everyone. And if you remember, at the height of the pandemic, before there were vaccines to help mitigate the risk of the virus, we really saw the powerlessness of human abilities. That's why everyone was scared. Everyone thinks highly of themselves and their abilities and power until such time troubles and challenges come, and then they realize their own powers and abilities are really limited or non-existent. I read now verses 19 and 20. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. The disciples were straining against a sudden evening storm in the darkness of the night. They were going nowhere and still in the middle of the lake, far from Capernaum. Mark chapter 6 tells us that Jesus saw them struggling in the lake and went to them, walking on the water, not at all bothered by the storm. As Jesus came close to the boat, his disciples were afraid because they thought he was a ghost because it was dark. All of their fears were fully realized in the darkness as they wondered who this figure who could walk on water was. Remember, they had seen and knew that Jesus could turn water into wine, heal the sick, multiply bread and fish, but they didn't know it was in the power abilities of Jesus to walk on water. That's why they assumed he was a ghost. You know, it's interesting to note that they did not fear the storm in this incident. 
It was more frustrating than anything. If you remember, there was another incident, another storm in the sea incident on the Sea of Galilee. In that incident, Jesus was sleeping in the boat, and they were afraid because they thought they were dying as the boat began to sink during the storm. But in this case, their fear was in their not knowing who this supernatural being was that could walk on water. And it was dark. There was a storm raging, and Jesus was not with them. Remember, they just come back from a spiritual and emotional high with the feeding of the 5,000 men and thousands of other women and children right before they got into the boat. They were probably feeling very confident and powerful as they were able to feed with Jesus' help those multitudes who were there, and even take with them 12 baskets full of leftover. All was good. Even without Jesus with them, and it was dark, they were not afraid. Then the sudden storm came, and it showed forth their true powerlessness, and perhaps with frustration, they were not able to sail the boat with any progress to their destination. Even using oars, they were straining to move the boat against the heavy winds, pushing them in the other direction. The struggle was real. But now in the darkness, they see a figure walking in the water, and they can't quite make out who it is in the darkness. And they think it is a ghost. And their feelings of insecurity, powerlessness, and fear all bubble up that they finally cry out in fear, absolutely terrified. They must have been panicking. Their previous feelings of confidence and power were now all gone. And they screamed and cried out like scared little children, as the Bible tells us. And then at the height of their feeling of fear and powerlessness, those assuring words from the Savior, It is I. Do not be afraid. You can just imagine how relieved His disciples were would have been to hear those words of identification and assurance. It was someone they knew well, their Lord, their teacher, their friend, their Savior, who was walking on water to meet them, to be with them. Wow. Now, I want you to notice the sentence structure of Jesus' statement. He first establishes the identity of who He is before the words of assurance from fear. Because the reason for them not to fear is because the person of Jesus is there. Jesus is saying, it's me, Jesus. I am the divine Son of God who is all-powerful. Because of who I am, you do not need to be afraid. If the statement was first, do not fear, then the natural response is, why? And the emphasis is now on the not fearing part. But Jesus wanted the emphasis on the person of who He is, and from that comes all of the natural responses like not fearing. I hope you see this. The use of it is I is a reminder of how the triune God likes to reveal Himself to mankind. Remember in the Old Testament how God revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush. He said, I am that I am. I am the great I am. One would have wished that God would have said more. Wouldn't it have been nice if Jesus had said to His disciples, Disciples, it is I, the one who can calm the storms. And here are my other abilities. I can walk on water. I can transport you to another place. I can appear and disappear. So don't be afraid. But have you ever wondered why 
his identification was so short. Simply, it is I. Because when he does so, the implication of all of his abilities are all put together in that statement. It's like when the comic hero Superman makes an appearance to save the day. He doesn't arrive and tell all the people, I'm Superman and I have the ability to fly. I have superhuman strength. I can shoot laser beams from my eyes. I can stop bullets. He simply says, I'm Superman. And they don't worry because they already know of his abilities. In the same way, Jesus doesn't have to say very much other than it is I. Because his disciples knew he could do supernatural things. He had supernatural divine abilities. For example, when Jesus tells the disciples and us, it is I, do not be afraid. Then we can remember the seven I am's of Jesus found also in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. A reminder that Jesus alone can sustain us. Jesus said, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. A reminder that He is the eternal source of light in a dark world. Jesus said, I am the gate of the sheepfold in John chapter 10. A reminder that Jesus protects us from all harm. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd in John chapter 10. A reminder that Jesus knows and cares for us, guiding, leading, and protecting. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life in John chapter 11. A reminder that Jesus gives us sure hope for this troubled life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John chapter 14. A reminder that Jesus is the giver of life for all of us who are lost. Jesus said, I am the true vine in John chapter 15, a reminder that Jesus is a source of life and enablement. So because of who Jesus is, then we have countless reasons not to fear. And this is our third biblical principle, biblical principle number three. Because God is the great I am, His unlimited powers give us no reasons to fear. Because God is the great I am, his unlimited powers give us no reasons to fear. As, my friends, you get to know more about who God is, then you can fill in the blanks of who is God and what are His abilities and power and how He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures. When you find out more about who God is, it can serve to encourage and assure you. And so we are reminded in the Scriptures that God is immutable, he never changes in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. If God does not change and is forever consistent, then His promises do not change. We remember that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He can do what is impossible if it is in line with His will. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. That means He knows what will happen tomorrow, so we don't have to worry about what tomorrow will bring. He is not surprised by what will happen, so we can rest well. For those who are lonely and feel deep sorrow, remember, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere always. We are never alone. We do not journey through our difficult life circumstances alone. Romans 11.33 remind us that God is wise. He is full of perfect, unchanging wisdom. That means His plan for us is perfect. There is no better plan for us than what He desires for us. Psalm 34 verse 8 tell us that God is good. 
It is a reminder that even though we go through times of suffering, God is still good. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 declares that God is love. He loves you and me with an everlasting love that knows no beginning and has no end. That's why He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And we can go on and on. God is just. He is merciful. He is gracious, faithful, holy, and so on. These and other characteristics and attributes of God are who God is and the reason why we do not fear. We can find assurance and comfort when we recognize that the great I am is always with us. Now look with me at verse 21. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. This verse tells us that the disciples quickly welcomed Jesus on the boat. John does not mention the immediate calming of the storm when Jesus got into the boat as Matthew and Mark do, or the fact that Peter tried to walk on the water only to sink when he took his eyes off of Jesus. What is mentioned here is that when Jesus stepped into the boat, they immediately reached their destination on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The miracle was them immediately reaching their destination, essentially being transported to the other side without having to strain anymore. With their own physical powers, they were unable to make it across the lake. But with the power of the living God in the boat with them, they immediately arrived. You know, we often read the story and focus on Jesus walking on the water. But the miracle that should be emphasized here in this story is that they reach their destination immediately. This story is primarily about the disciples unable to get to the other side of the lake because of a sudden storm. They tried with all of their physical might and sailing knowledge, but they got nowhere. But with the Savior in the boat, they suddenly overcame all struggles and challenges. And from this, we draw out our last biblical principle, biblical principle number four. With God's almighty power, we can overcome all of life's storms, struggles, and challenges. With God's almighty power, we can overcome all of life's storms, struggles, and challenges. Alicia Michelle tells of how she discovered joy during intense parenting struggles through God's mighty power. She writes, as a mom to four children, I could write so much about the parenting challenges we've had so far. But the one that stands out the most happened from April 2014 to April 2015, when our oldest son went through some extreme behavioral issues which required professional intervention. In a nutshell, my life as a mom became wrapped around helping my then 11-year-old son who has ADHD and autism learn how to cope and function as he went through some extreme emotional issues. He became nearly impossible to handle. Not just, I don't want to do this defiant, but yelling at me, throwing things, and constantly causing a scene in our house. It became downright impossible to do homeschool with him, let alone to help our three other children who were then nine, six, and two. I felt incredibly helpless. Every single moment of every day was an all-out battle. No matter how fervently I prayed for things to change, every day's events repeated themselves and day after day faded into the next. I was utterly spent emotionally, spiritually, and physically. To top it off, my hardworking husband traveled nearly 50% of the time. 
He was incredibly supportive, but he wasn't physically there a lot. So that meant I spent a lot of time alone in the trenches of this trial, carrying this immense emotional and physical burden on my own. Eventually, our precious son was hospitalized for several days. It required loads of faith and trust in God in order to bring him there, but we knew it would be the best option for him. Afterward, he was assigned to a special therapy three days a week for four hours at a time at a location over an hour from our house, getting him to and from therapy while finding childcare and rides for my other three kids was extremely taxing in itself. I felt like a zombie many days as I spent every last ounce of energy trying to keep life going for all four of our kids, who of course still needed my constant attention. But God and Bible verses about trials and hard times became my only solace. I prayed continually and asked God to help my faith to be strong, and to even have joy during this parenting trial. And God taught me many things about moment-by-moment faith during this life challenge. Specifically, God used a story of how He fed the Israelites through the desert with His daily manna, as recorded in Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 20, to teach me how He was going to provide for me in this season, one day at a time. There were times I thought I wasn't physically going to make it, but I saw how He built supernatural joy into my heart through this trial. For the first time, He showed me how to really have joy during trials. And as it turns out, those lessons I learned then about joy in trials were ones I would greatly need for the future. My friends, whatever you're going through, whether it is parenting challenges to struggles in your personal life, love life, spousal relationships, challenges with your parents or children, difficulties at work, having issues with money, retirement, looking for provisions, issues with housing, finding satisfaction and purpose in life. Whatever it may be, remember that with the all-powerful God journeying with you, living in your hearts, you and I will be able to get through all of it. We simply take it a day at a time, and God will give us the enablement, grace, and strength to get through the day. May this be your encouragement and assurance. Let me conclude with a true story of God's amazing power told in a book by Homer Doughty titled Christ's Witch Doctor. This book tells the amazing true story of Elka. Elka was born to the tribe Waiwai in the Amazonian jungle of South America around 1933. The Waiwai tribe live along the border of Brazil and Guiana. Elka was raised in the traditional YY way. At 15, he underwent the stinging ants test of courage and resolve, standing with belts of stinging ants wrapped around his legs. He feared and admired the all-powerful witch doctor who could curse and heal. He grew to be such a respected young man that before the age of 20, he was recognized as a shaman. Elka went to live with Mafolio, the local witch doctor, He was convinced that the spirits were calling him to be a witch doctor. Soon he could heal the sick. He was considered kind and wise and was made the chief of the YY tribe. The YY were a fearful people. They feared the spirits of the jungle. They feared the neighboring tribes and their constant threat of war. Their traditions of spirit dances and nature worship could only appease the spirits to a certain extent. They respected and feared their ancestral spirits, and they feared what would happen to them 
after death. In the 1940s, missionaries showed up trying to tell the YY tribe about a new God, Jesus. Elka would greet them with a smile, but he was not happy to see them. He would poison their drinks or bludgeon them to death. For a time, the quote-unquote white men were not seen in their territory. Then news came of more quote-unquote white men coming their way, and the YY feared that they would be murderers coming for revenge. Neil and Bob Hawkins came to the YY tribe in 1948. They were kind men who brought gifts. Slowly, they learned the language of the YY. They told of God, the Creator, who made the world and all the people in it. They told of His Son, Jesus, who had died to take away their, quote-unquote, badness. The YY had never heard of this kind of love. Elka thought about this Jesus. Jesus was against the spirits that Elka served. What would happen to Elka if he followed Jesus? He thought he might die. By this time, Elka had taken a wife, and she was about to give birth. He wanted a baby boy, and in the YY tribe, an unwanted child could be killed. But what if his wife had a little girl? Would he kill her? He knew that Jesus wouldn't want him to kill his daughter. When his wife delivered a daughter, Elka had a choice to make. He was going to kill the girl child, but an unseen voice told him it was wrong. He picked up the little girl, handed her to his wife, and said, We will save the child. But he was afraid of the spirits, but he wasn't afraid of Jesus. This is Elka. I am deciding to follow Jesus, Elka said as he looked up into the sky. You help me to forsake the spirits and get rid of my charms. That's all I ask. The people of the village warned Elka that he would die in three days if he turned his back on the spirits. They worried that he would no longer be able to heal their sicknesses. They watched as he threw his witch doctor charms into the river and began praying to Jesus. When he didn't die, he told his village, Jesus is stronger than our spirits. Around 1955, Elka sat down with Bob and Neil as they read God's papers, the Bible. Bob and Neil said they wanted to translate the Bible into the YY language. As Elka helped the Hawkins brothers translate the Bible, he learned what it was that God wanted from him. The people of the village noticed that he had changed. He no longer beat his wife or drank liquor. He was kind to children other than his own, and he started taking in orphan babies. His example was watched and then followed by others in his tribe. Soon the tribe stopped stealing wives and killing babies. They started to love their wives and help them in their hard chores. The YY tribe learned about God's laws for marriage, morality, and conduct. And soon the entire village came to believe in Jesus and abandoned their old pagan ways and their spirits. My friends, the gospel of Christ turned the witch doctor into a missionary. It turned killing raids into prayer meetings. The love of Christ grew a once-dying tribe into a mission center. The Ka'an Karitan, the Holy Scriptures in the YY language, is changing lives all across the remote jungles of Brazil. It was said that by 1962, the YY people had gone on as many mission trips in as many directions as a man had fingers and toes. That, my friends, is the power of the gospel of the living Savior, Jesus Christ. It has the power to change lives and transform communities. So when it comes to power, remember, number one, 
Those with true powers do not need to prove it to others for self-glorification. Number two, perceived great human powers are quite limited when challenges arise. Number three, because God is the great I Am, His unlimited powers give us no reasons to fear. Number four, with God's almighty power, we can overcome all of life's storms, struggles, and challenges. My friends, let us all live victorious lives, recognizing the power of the risen Savior in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this reminder that indeed we are powerless. We have nothing to brag about or boast about, but it is because of Your enabling power in our lives that we are able to do what we do, that we are who we are. Father, help us to focus on You, the great I Am. If any of us are in need of comfort and care, and if any of us are lonely and discouraged, may we look to You, the great I Am, who brings assurance and confidence. Father, if there are any of us who need to be humbled, may we lower ourselves, recognizing who we are and the great God that we worship. Father, I pray that if any of us are going through challenges, storms, and struggles, that we would cling on to the mighty power of God and through the power of the risen Savior be able to overcome with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we look to You to find encouragement and strength for the day. We love You, Lord, and we thank You that indeed You are all-powerful and You love us with an everlasting love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.